Good morning. Please follow along with me as I read from Luke chapter 24. We're going from verse 13 to 35, and it will be on the Blue Bibles on your seats or on the screen behind me. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Thank you, Corin. And Aisha and I really are grateful to be able to baptize our daughter today with such a great family around her and lots of her wider village around as well. Um, it's one of those days that we've looked forward to and planned. Uh, the Seafang family likes to celebrate a good occasion. Uh, so, you know, we've planned some extra morning tea. We debated which picture of Priya was the cutest to put up on the slide. Uh, and we've, we've thought about, you know, how, how we can make this an occasion where we can share with our church and wider family just how much we love being part of God's family. Uh, it's a privilege to get to be the preacher today. Um, a little nerve-wracking, but kind of nice that friends and family get to see what it's like when Jamie gives a sermon. Um, since we're talking about the resurrection, though, the thought did cross my mind. Uh, wouldn't it have been much better if we could have organized Jesus to come and give the sermon today? 
Christians believe that Jesus really physically walked out of his tomb and that he's alive and active today. If that's true, then why isn't Jesus touring around and showing people the irrefutable evidence? I mean, on this, the day of my daughter's baptism, uh, that would be pretty good. And really, you know, any Sunday here, you'll find believers coming from the ups and downs of another week, tired, in need of encouragement that following Jesus really does make a difference. And you'll find people taking the chance to come and think about life and God, maybe for the first time in a while. If Jesus really offers hope beyond the grave to all people, why doesn't he just show us in a way that we cannot deny? Have you ever wondered about that? What would convince you that death is not the end? It's a question that Christians have faced right from the start. Uh, it's no accident that Jesus is not here physically today. But if the people who saw the risen Jesus with their own eyes had trouble wrapping their heads around it, imagine being part of that second generation of Christians who, just like us today, live in a world when Jesus is not physically around, who never saw his body and yet heard the news about the empty tomb. In the brutal Roman Empire, with plenty of religious intolerance, you'd need to be pretty convinced that Jesus was for real to sign yourself and your family up for a life of following him. And for countless thousands through the generations, that's exactly what they've done. And many, including these eyewitnesses who couldn't believe what they were seeing at the time, died because of their conviction that Jesus beat death. So Luke's writing to people really just like us, who are trying to work out how you can be sure if you'd want to pin your hopes on Jesus. So let's come with him now on the road with these two disciples as they go on a journey from disappointment to clarity. And it'll be helpful to keep your Bibles open with that passage. Uh, point one, a world of disappointment. I imagine it would have been one of those circular conversations that Easter Sunday, uh, those conversations that go round and round in the wake of a shock. They're walking away from the city that just two days prior had been drenched in darkness at midday as Jesus of Nazareth hung naked and dying. For Jesus' friends who were there, you'd be reeling just from the trauma of that, wouldn't you? You can imagine some of the questions Cleopas and his friend were circling around. Could the man who walked on water really be dead just like that? What's going to happen to us now? Joanna and Mary went to embalm his body this morning, but they came back saying it wasn't there. Was there really an angel? And it's in that moment that the risen Jesus chooses to turn up and start keeping step with these two friends. I wonder if he was able to keep a straight face in verse 17 when he asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? The two disciples have no idea who he is. They just stand still with their faces downcast. Two sad men standing in a sad world. 
it's tempting to wonder how they didn't recognize their Lord. But have you ever had an experience where something just goes in one ear and out the other because it's so kind of far out of your usual experience? Uh, My friend, let's call her Louise, was once job hunting. Uh, One of the employers that she interviewed with was the kind of employer who everyone wanted to work for. Uh, Competent, relational, invested in his staff, lots of applicants. Louise found herself being offered a job by this employer. But for a range of factors, she decided to reluctantly turn the job down and go and work somewhere else. So she rings up this employer to tell him, thanks for the opportunity, um, but I'm going a different way. To which the employer replies, Louise, that's music to my ears. And she's like, hang on, uh, either I'm deeply insulted or there's been some kind of misunderstanding. Uh, Turns out the employer was just so used to everyone saying yes to his job offers that the words, I'm going a different way, was so foreign, and he just automatically went into welcome aboard mode. The idea that death is not the end is deeply foreign to us, isn't it? It's no wonder these two just stand there grieving, even when they see Jesus. Because our world is beautiful, but disappointing, isn't it? Uh, When Aisha and I lived in Sydney, we used to love taking the tourist kind of walk from Bondi to Coogee, uh, these beaches that make you feel like you're on a TV show. And part of that walk is through a huge cemetery that overlooks the sea. I always found it a pleasantly surreal experience because I'm looking out and seeing the beauty of the ocean. But at the same time, the tombstones are preaching to me telling me that no matter how fun your life is, even if you can afford an expensive plot overlooking Bondi, that's where you'll end up. I've got to say, most of those graves look pretty run down. Maybe once upon a time, these people were the movers and shakers in the world. Uh, Surely they had people in their lives who cared and depended on them. But give it a couple of generations... And the world moves on. I get the same sermon when I scroll through my devices. You know, life is short, so achieve as much as you can before you die. On that first Easter Sunday, Jesus meets us in a world of disappointment, our world. And he gently prods these two to kind of open up about their grief. And what they say is quite revealing. Have a look from verse 19. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They've seen what Jesus can do. They've heard his repeated claim that he would rise three days after being rejected and killed. But even when the risen Jesus is looking them in the face... They can't see him because they know things about him. They don't really know him, not yet anyway. He was a man, a prophet, powerful, all true things. But nodding your head to some of the key facts about Jesus doesn't mean that you know the hope that he offers. Because it's easy to nod along uh, 
all the while just kind of fitting Jesus into the grid of what we know of this disappointing world. And that's ultimately why they're sad. They had a redeemer in mind who would take Rome by force, uh, freeing the Israelites from political oppression. And they're about to find out that Jesus' redemption is so big, it blows that grid out of the water. So close, yet so far. And Luke recounts the conversation with more than a hint of irony. Uh, you know, and what's more, it is the third day since this all took place. Some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. What about you, fellas? Who do you see, I wonder? If you live in a world with a low ceiling, where the dead don't rise, you can look the risen Jesus in the face and see nothing but a stranger. And I don't know about you, but I find these two travelers quite relatable. And that's good news because it tells me that following Jesus isn't about blindly accepting the impossible as a nice statement of faith. It's actually quite the opposite. If you've ever found yourself doubting if the resurrection is true, then you've understood the gravity of what Jesus claims. And you're in good company with the first eyewitnesses. If I was to make up a story to manipulate people, I wouldn't do it like that. I'd be saying something like, oh, all the bad people didn't understand the Messiah. But the true believers like me, we never doubted for a second. Listen to me. Maybe you've got the idea that a really mature Christian is someone who never doubts. Who has something cheery to say no matter how bad life gets. That's not how the first Christians saw things. The first eyewitnesses, many of whom ended up living incredible lives of faith were completely perplexed by the empty tomb. And it wasn't until after a lot of talking and wrestling that, and lots of help from Jesus himself that the penny dropped. Doubt is a normal part of the Christian experience. Because Jesus meets us in our doubts and invites us into the heart of the issue. And that's point two. Um, Over my kind of 16 or so years as a Christian, I found myself occasionally having a go at some walk-up evangelism, uh, walking up to strangers, if you can believe that, mostly hanging out at uni campuses and asking them what they think about Jesus. Uh, It's always deeply frightening. Uh, If you know my personality, you'll know just how frightening. But always stimulating, and I'm always surprised by how open people are to talking about spiritual things. Um, I can think of a couple of conversations that went like this. Oh, what do you think about Jesus? Really interesting guy, Um, great person. Have you ever thought about whether Jesus might have really risen from the dead? Oh, yeah, I guess, you know, Easter, sure, maybe he did. And I'm there kind of like ready with my great arguments for the historical evidence of the empty tomb. But I say, oh, well, so you're saying you already believe Jesus rose from the dead? I guess. I still don't want to be a Christian, though. (laughs) Have you ever been on either side of a conversation like that? They're probably just trying to get rid of me, and that's fair enough. Uh, But I think there's something true there. 
Uh, we see it in Luke 24 because it becomes clear that the issue is not that there's not enough physical evidence of Jesus' resurrection. It's not a physical problem. It's a spiritual problem. Uh, I skipped over verse 16 before. Luke says that the disciples were kept from recognizing him, which introduces the whole issue of spiritual blindness which is big in Luke's gospel. Jesus stormed onto the Nazarene scene in Luke 4 by saying, in terms of the prophet Isaiah, God has sent me to proclaim recovery of sight for the blind. And his miracles of touching the eyes of blind people and letting them see again pointed to something even more miraculous. Because Jesus knew, like Isaiah did, that we live in a world that has closed its eyes to God. We all have that deep-seated capacity to turn a blind eye to the one who gave us life, to hear the word of a dead man walking out of his grave and say, I don't want to know about it. It sounds irrational when I put it like that, but We all know what it's like, don't we? You know when you're having an argument with someone that you love? At some point, the flick tends to switch and the facts don't matter anymore, right? Uh, At some point, it becomes about me getting my way and proving you wrong. Because the issue is not about facts and reasons, it's a relational breakdown, usually because of my selfishness. I'm sure you can imagine that in a house with two little kids, silly arguments can be a bit close to the surface and rationality sometimes goes out the window. One of the lines that Aisha and I try to keep saying is, we're on the same team, aren't we? Because how ridiculously sad would it be if we started treating each other like enemies? Why do we do that to the people we love? We do it to each other and we do it to God. Facts be damned, I just want my way and you're in my way. And so we turn our backs on the God who loves us. No wonder our world is such a disappointing place. Where in our stubbornness, we try to block our ears to the good words of our creator. We turn a blind eye to his kindness. Spiritual blindness. Very human thing. It wrecks our relationships with each other and with God. And in comes Jesus, proclaiming recovery of sight for the blind. Here he stands alive before his two friends... And their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Kept by who? I think in the context, the most reasonable answer is kept by Jesus, the one with the power to open eyes. Jesus is letting these disciples experience that blindness for just a bit longer because he's teaching them something. If, if they're going to see, like really see who Jesus is, if they're going to convince others that death is not the end, they need to know that it's more than just an issue of physical evidence and that Jesus, the giver of sight, has a powerful cure for our spiritual blindness and it's available to everyone. And so point three, let's see how light breaks in. 
I love how patiently Jesus listens uh, to these two friends of his talking about why the whole Jesus thing didn't work out. In his patience, in his kindness, he doesn't leave them wallowing. He takes them on this journey of discovery. Let's read from verse 25. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? The concept of a risen Jesus is not even on their radar because they haven't understood the necessity of Jesus' cross and resurrection. They were hoping for a redemption from Rome that would require a political victory in a world with a low ceiling. What they needed was redemption from blindness, the bleakness of life without the giver of life in the picture, that great oppressor of humans, death. Jesus is a bigger Messiah than these disciples dared to imagine. And in order to win that victory, the Messiah had to die under God's judgment as a substitute for his people. And he had to rise again as the firstborn from among the dead. That's how Jesus deals with the heart of the issue. These guys should have known it. How many times have they heard Jesus talk about it? The fact that Jesus deigns to walk along this road of discovery with them tells us this, I think. Jesus wants you to know him. No matter how you've treated him in the past, no matter how long you've known stuff about him but left it to one side, the risen king of the universe stoops down to walk alongside us and to reason with us. And notice how Jesus makes himself known in verse 27 Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that is the whole Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He doesn't say, look into my eyes. He says, look at what the scriptures say. That's how you'll recognize me. And the disciples look back at this as the moment that their hearts lit up. I don't know how you think about this big collection of books that we call the Bible, Some see it as a book of guidelines about how to live a good life. But countless believers can testify to the focus and conviction that came when they started reading it as a book given by God all about Jesus. Jesus tells his first Christians, it's not about seeing me with your own two eyes. You can't understand who I am without the context of God's long promise of a saviour. As one example, I remember how my heart burned when I first read the book of Isaiah. Not as a random set of motivational instructions, but to see if it said something about Jesus. No matter what scholar you follow, there's no getting around the fact that Isaiah was written centuries before Christ. So when I got to the 53rd chapter, it sent a chill down my spine to read this. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. The scriptures sing about Jesus, a savior who would die for the sins of his people and rise to the light of life. And so here's a thought 
the way that Jesus makes himself known today is exactly the same as how he did it for those first believers. The cure for our spiritual blindness then and now is this. Jesus wants us to know him and he wants us to know him through his word. Have you ever read the Bible through that lens? As a side note, I love um, how these travelers respond to being challenged. Like Jesus literally calls them fools and they say, oh, please come and stay with us. Uh, so if you found anything in this sermon a bit uncomfortable, please make like these disciples and press into the challenge. Don't stay comfy. Ask more questions, not less. That invitation to stay was the best thing these two guys ever did because it led to that penny drop moment in verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. It was a very Jesus thing to do. Uh, Back in Luke 9, he did this very thing with a few loaves of bread and some fish and fed a crowd of thousands. And it pointed to the fact that Jesus is the one to lead the exodus, freeing us from our captivity to sin and death. Because in the first exodus recorded in scripture, God saved his people from Egypt. And it wasn't long until they got hungry and started complaining. And so God dispelled all doubts about his goodness by miraculously providing bread from heaven to feed his people. In Luke 9 and ultimately the cross, Jesus shows himself to be the God of our exodus. So on Easter Sunday, when they saw that familiar action, now with the light of scripture burning in their minds, verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And Jesus' immediate physical disappearance underlines the fact his physical presence is no longer needed. That journey of discovery that Jesus leads these followers on assures me of this. I can really know Jesus today just the way he wants me to. Uh, Maybe I can illustrate the point by telling you about two musicians in New York. Um, I've seen Bob Dylan twice. Uh, The first concert I went to, it just blew my mind to think, I'm seeing the same face that was once the face of a generation I don't know Bob Dylan, though. I've learned things about him from his huge songbook. But even still, I can't be sure that I know what he meant when he said the answer is blowing in the wind. The second musician in New York is my friend Jacob. I don't think anyone's ever described him as the artist of a generation, but I think they should. Okay, I know Jacob. We've talked about lots of things. When I hear his music, I get this little knowing smile on my face. I know exactly what he means because I hear it in the context of our friendship. And if I don't get something, I just ask him. That's the kind of relationship that Jesus extends to us. Not by physically turning up, not today anyway, but by speaking through his word in scripture. And that's a great thing because it means my relationship with God is not determined by me. Uh, It's not about finding meaning from within. God gives help from outside. As I read these words passed down through the millennia, the living Jesus is making himself known to me. 
And that means my relationship with him is not dependent on how I'm feeling today or how good I've been this week. It's steady. So it's no accident that the risen Jesus isn't giving the sermon today, uh, as amazing as that would be. And as much as I look forward to the day when we see Jesus face to face, today he has promised to make himself present to us whenever the Bible is opened up, whether it be in a sermon by some guy in Kernelite Gardens or as two friends open up a chapter of the Bible and talk about it. The risen, living Jesus has promised to make himself known. So let me ask, have you tried coming to Jesus on his terms? When we're thinking about the resurrection of all things, it's tempting to think I'd be sure if I saw it. Luke asks us, would you though? Before he ascended to his father's right hand, Jesus went out of his way to show how all scripture leads us to him That's how he wants us to know him now. So to write Jesus off because he doesn't give you a miraculous sign right here, right now, that's to turn a blind eye to the evidence that he has personally offered you. You cannot honestly make up your mind about Jesus without contending with what the Bible says. We're talking about big things today. We're talking about the possibility that death is not the end. So Please don't write that off before looking seriously into the Bible. And if Jesus is the eye-opener, it follows that we can and should ask him for his help to understand. If you're here today and you realize you haven't really explored Jesus on his own terms and you'd like to, one great way forward would be to find a way to engage with the Bible. Uh, Talk to me, talk to a Christian friend. I bet they'll be keen to read with you. Uh, Come along over Easter as we keep opening the Bible together. But the other great step would be to pray a dangerous prayer. Something like this. Jesus, if you're there, please show me. What would stop you praying a prayer like that? If you've been following him for a while, have you forgotten that you need to pray prayers like that too? As you come to church, go to growth group, read your Bible, don't forget who you're going to meet with, the one who opens eyes and makes hearts come alive. These two disciples saw the lights come on that Easter Sunday. And I love how their inner change leads to an immediate response. They throw caution to the wind and double back to Jerusalem at night time to tell the others. It's that knee-jerk reaction of sharing a good thing. If you're a believer today, how is that uh, reflex going for you? Honestly, one of the things that can hold me back from talking about Jesus is the sense that there are some pretty smart arguments against Christianity out there, and am I really going to be the one to dispel them? Luke 24 reminds us, Jesus makes himself known through the simple act of prayerfully opening the Bible. I've been challenged over the past few months as I've heard numerous stories of Christian friends having a go asking someone to read some Bible with them, and they were keen Maybe we can relax about having all the answers and let Jesus do the heavy lifting by opening up a chapter 
talking about what it means and praying that Jesus might show himself. One of the lullabies that's kind of emerged uh, from deep in my subconscious uh, late at night with Priya uh, goes something like this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It sounds so basic and even a tad naive, but Jesus is here to tell us today There is no deeper, no more life-shaping piece of theology than this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Just ask the guys from Emmaus Road. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you know how we struggle in this world of disappointment. You know how we long for something more. Uh, Whether we've been following Jesus for years or we're just checking things out, you know that we all have that capacity to turn a blind eye to you. Thank you for not leaving us in that state. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to redeem us. Please open our eyes for the first time and afresh to the wonder of knowing you, really knowing you. Amen.